Revelation that revolutionizes us. Yeah, we pray for that, Lucy. So that your name may be honored and that you can move us. I left off Ephesians chapter 1 at the end of verse 14. But I'm grateful that where we stopped, uh, many of you were encouraged and helped and even challenged as well by what we did cover. This letter was written not just, we think, to the Ephesians, but to a number of churches in what is now Western Turkey. It was a circular letter that the church was added in as it arrived. Let me read again from the beginning so we get the context. Just read through, if I can. <laughs> just read through. Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And really, it's a shame there that the version I'm using has got praise, because it's really, blessed be God, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. The word is blessing. Every blessing of the Spirit in the heavens. For He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for Himself, according to His favour and will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He graced us with in the Beloved. We have redemption in Him, in Jesus, through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure that He planned in Him, in Jesus, for the administration of the days of fulfillment, to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in Him. We have also received an inheritance in Him, predestined according to the purpose of the One who works out everything in agreement with the decision of His will, so that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to His glory. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, your rescue, your deliverance, and when you believed in Him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He, the Spirit, is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. And then Paul turns what he's been saying into request, into prayer. He asked the Lord, to cause his readers, his hearers, because very often, usually these things were read out loud, not 
given on a piece of paper to people to read these letters. That they would hear the truth and see it and understand it and be transformed by it. This is why. Now I'm going to break down here and, and talk as I go along. Right? This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. Your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. The result of their faith was love for all the saints. Jesus commanded us to love one another as Christians and said that this was the key non-verbal witness to the unbelieving world that we are his people. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. John, in his letters, says that this is a key test, too, of whether we really are the children of God, that we have that love one for another. Paul, writing Galatians, says faith works by love. Interestingly, some people would think faith works by power, by science. No, faith works by love. Faith is energized by compassion, by care. Jesus was moved with compassion and healed people. Right? His acts of faith in his Father and bringing healing to people were done because he was moved with compassion. Faith works by love. Faith doesn't work, faith doesn't work by faith. That's a ridiculous statement. Faith works because it's motivated by love. Love is the fruit which faith produces. Read in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc., etc. But the first one is, and the biggest one is, love. It's the fruit that faith produces. And if we do not have this characteristic of love, you can read 1 Corinthians 13 on that, for one another, seen by the world, we do not show ourselves to be the disciples of Christ. No matter how much we rant, they have no reason to believe us unless they see the key evidence that we have such a care and concern for one another. It marks us out as being very different from unbelieving people. Paul is seen clearly here as a persistent prayer and also a thankful one. I never stop giving thanks for you. I want you to notice this. Paul never commends people for their faith. Didn't you do well that you've got faith? He thanks God for their faith. Yes? He doesn't praise them. He praises God that God gave them this deliverance into faith and grace. More on that in chapter 2. I always remember you in my prayers. Now, there's a balance between being, making vain repetitions, you know, kind of Hail Mary, full of grace, Hail Mary, that kind of thing, and actually praying repeatedly, consistently, and presenting your case before God until you know he's answered you. Persistent faith in praying, Jesus calls faith. Sorry, I should have said persistent praying, Jesus calls faith. When he comes on the earth, will he find faith on the earth? That context of that is talking about the widow who wouldn't give up, knocking on the, the door of the judge. The man who wouldn't give up, knocking in the middle of the night for bread because he needed to feed a visitor. Jesus said, will, you, will he find that kind of faith? It's persistent faith that does not keep asking that keeps on asking, sorry, doesn't stop asking. I must stop adding to my notes, I can hit the trouble. <laughs> Faith, according to the Lord Jesus, asks and keeps on asking, seeks and keeps on seeking, and knocks and keeps on knocking. And I discovered this week that in the Greek, those three words in the Greek version, grime. 
So they're memorable for us because they spill ASK, but in Greek they rhyme. I won't bother you with what, how they sound. <laughs> Notice this. Paul is con constantly thanking God and constantly making requests of God. And the two go hand in hand. The two belong together. We are to pray and ask with thanksgiving. There's a number of scriptures I've given you on that one. Pray and ask with thanksgiving. And pray means ask, very simply. If you pray but you can't remember what you ask God for, you didn't pray. You just had a little kind of, a, little kind of, you know, bit of oratory perhaps, bit of a bit of a ramble, bit of a waffle. But you know, God wants you to ask Him so He can deliver something. Yes. All right. Yes. So He can be seen to be good to you. All right. I pray, says Paul. I ask very simply. That word is a simple word for ask that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit, not a spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father. The Father was always the Father to the Son. That was their eternal relationship. But when the Son became man, Jesus called on the Father as his God. He's the Father of glory, glorious in himself, and he shares his glory with his children. Jesus prayed for that. I ask that they may be with me where I am, that they may see my glory that I had before you, with you before the foundation of the world. We share in, we reflect back the glory of God in Jesus in the world to come. He's the God of glory. That he would give you the spirit. God never gives us a spirit of something. He gives us the Holy Spirit to bring something to us. So he, he gives a particular work in us. That's the language of Scripture. The Holy Spirit is often called what he's doing at that time, communicating or achieving. So here he's called the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. We've already read in the early verses that God has lavished wisdom and understanding upon us together with his love, poured out love, poured out wisdom, and understanding. And here he prays that the Holy Spirit would give us wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Let's look at those three words here. I'll reorder them a little. Because this is the way practically they tend to happen for us. Revelation. All right, let's, let's, let's spill it out. This is the meaning of the original Greek word. Revelation, disclosure, appearing, coming, lightening, lighten up. To, to make something lit up. Manifestation, revealing. Understanding, mental action or activity. Intellectual or moral insight or, or prudence. You're able to make judgments, understanding. But then wisdom has this kind of one simple expression. It means skill. It means you know what to do and how to do it. Understanding, you can understand a problem, but you, with wisdom you know how to deal with the problem. Wisdom is always practical. It's never just theoretical or philosophical. It tells, this is what you do. How many of you know that this book, the Bible, is full of wisdom? It oozes out of it. We've been reading, those of you doing the reading plan, we've been reading Proverbs really little bit by little bit. The whole thing is just full of wisdom. Don't be foolish. Get this wisdom. That's the order they usually work in us. The Lord reveals, opens up truth to us, so we see it, and we're changed in our thinking 
So they then changed in our behaving. So because we get a skill, a wisdom to handle life. James in his letter says that the wisdom comes from above, produces godly character, godly fruit. What's been revealed or manifested to us, we've understood, must work through to being seen and shown in and through us. The truth must not only be preached to us, but revealed in us. It's no wonder that Paul, having done a bit of preaching, you might say, then says he's praying. I pray that you folks get this, that you see this. In knowing him. By the way, one of the great joys of being a preacher and a teacher is you can be talk, talking to a whole group of people and you can see the light bulb go on for somebody. It's precious. They go, it's like they go, yes. You know, they, they, they've seen something they, they didn't see before. Now, you, they may have heard it any number of times. I'm not criticizing that person. I'm saying the Holy Spirit switched the light on there. Yeah? And they saw it. You know when you've seen something, don't you? But this wisdom and this knowledge and this revelation is geared up to one thing, one main thing, in knowing Him. All right? Faith is a relationship. It's the connection between a human being and their God. Faith. God doesn't want us to live with just the historical faith. Oh, I understand about that. I understand. I've got the Bible. I understand about all. No, you need to know Him. We're called to grow and increase in the knowledge of God, says it says in Colossians, which is a parallel letter to Colossians. Revelation, understanding, wisdom by the Spirit. I pray that these things, which are lavished upon, may be work, working in you. That you may see things, understand things, and that understanding it may transform the way you live. I made it up when I was praying earlier, didn't I? Revelation that revolutionizes us. So here's Paul, he's praying on, he doesn't say it one way, he says it another way. I pray that the perception or understanding of your mind may be enlightened so you may know. To be really conscious and aware of something. Remember, Jesus said this, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. When you're enlightened, you know something, it transforms life for you. It's truth that changes life, that brings freedom. And Paul mentions three things that we need to know. Let me say here, I get my, it's in my notes later. But if there are, if there, you only remember one bit of this morning, I want, I pray you remember these three lines of Scripture. These three headlines. Three things you need to know. No, no, this is not all you need to know, but there are three here, and we'll do for this morning. I can't preach to you the whole counsel of God in one go, but I preach what's in Scripture in one go. All right, that, that's all I can do. That you will know. What? Number one, what is the hope of his calling? Number two, what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints? And number three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe, according to the working of his vast strength? We're going to deal with those one at a time. What is the hope of his calling? We've already read in chapter one, earlier in chapter 1. We need to know that we were chosen and called by God to be his children. 
that we now live in hope, not just of Jesus returning, but implied in that is that he will complete in us all that is begun in us. He who started a good thing will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ is born. I'm convinced of that. He who started a good work in you will continue it. You don't get saved and then sit around waiting for Jesus to come. That's not the deal. We are changed and being changed. Being transformed from one degree of his likeness to a, to a further one. We live in hope, looking towards the future destiny and outcome of his purpose in redeeming us. We know that's where we're headed. And therefore we embrace his change. Let me give you these headlines to you. We are saved, being saved, and will be saved. That's a statement of hope. The hope of his calling. He has saved us in regeneration, being born again. He is saving us by sanctification, by continuing to transform us, to cleanse and change us. And he will save us. He will glorify us and make us like his son Jesus. Do you believe those things? Yes. Let me put it another way. He has cleansed us. He is cleansing us. And he will utterly cleanse us. That's our hope. The hope of our calling. He's kept us. He is keeping us. He will keep us. So Paul can say, I have... I am persuaded that he will keep what I've committed to him against that day. I'm convinced he's not going to let me go. Therefore, believing those things changes the way we live. Hope is the projection of faith into the future. Future grace, as John Piper calls it. We live in expectation of future grace, which will be even better than what we know now. We live in confident expectation of this covenant love of God through Jesus. And we await in hope the full and final result of our redemption, which will be our resurrection by the Lord Jesus, to be like him and to be with him. Now listen, hope. Let me give you a bit of a pointer about hope. See, to drive well, you've got to keep your eyes up, anticipating what's ahead. You glance down at the speedo, but you can't watch the speedo all the time. You can't look in the rear window all the time, and a lot of Christians look in the rear window. We'll look at that in Ephesians 2. You can't drive forwards looking in the rear window. To, look, to drive well, you've got to be looking up ahead to anticipate what's coming. To live well, we've got to constantly lift our gaze from now to then, from earth to heaven. It is in hope, expectation of glory ahead, that we accept now personal losses, costs, denials, sacrifices. Because we're setting our hope and our heart on greater joy and reward with Jesus. Amen. It's the hope of his calling, the final outcome of what he determined for us before he made the universe. You've been made awakened to this hope when you were brought to life and faith by the working of God. See, for many of us, our vision is too small. We're walking through life looking at our own feet. We need our chin to be lifted. There's a lovely scripture in, uh, thank you, there's a lovely scripture in Psalms that says that the Lord is the lifter of his people's head. And I've always imagined that as a hand coming under your chin. Come on. Look up. The lifter of his people's head. When you're looking down, God says, come on, look up. Look up. Why? Because your help comes from him. I, I know I prayed at the beginning as well, but I had a thought this morning. 
driving here. Back in the 1960s, the, uh, the Eastern, Eastern Germany and the Soviets blockaded Berlin. There was a part of Berlin that was Western, you know, the, the Allies ran that. And they built a wall and they enclosed it. And it was President Kennedy who committed himself, we will not let this happen to Berlin. And they did the Berlin airlift, day after day, day after day, day after day. Great big American, you know, planes flew, supplies, into Berlin, into Berlin. And it carried on until it was no longer news, like a lot of things happen. They, when they keep happening, they're no longer news. They kept supplying Berlin. It pretty much happened until the Berlin Wall, fought, Berlin Wall fell. The Berlin Airlift, it was called. Everybody who lived in West Berlin was supplied by... The, American and British planes that flew in. My friends, you and I are citizens of heaven living in this world. Our supply comes again and again, day after day, from heaven. That's how we live. No matter how much the world pressures us to, to give in to them, to give in to the way of the world and the, the pattern of the world and the philosophy of the world, we are living under the supply of heaven. Yes. Take hold of this word hope and make sure it's at work in you. The second one is this. What are the glorious riches of his inheritance among or in or with the saints? It's not his inheritance for the saints. It doesn't say that. I mean, you could, you know, some people kind of say, oh, it must mean that. No, it doesn't. It doesn't say that. It's his inheritance with the saints or in the saints. You see, we only inherit what he inherits. We're in Christ. What's his becomes ours because we're in him. It's not ours without him. There are two ways of looking at that. First of all, how God has invested in us, his children, and then how great that inheritance it will be. You know, everybody who makes an investment wants the payback, don't they? You know, you put your money in your riser and you get a few pennies on it at the end of the year, you know. Not great, is it? <laughs> Listen, how much investment has God made in you and I? It's summed up in one word, Jesus. He gave his only son. So Paul writes in Romans, he who did not withhold his only son but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also with him give us all things? This is huge investment. God gave the beloved eternal son. Not just to be one of us, but to go to the cross. Massive investment. Huge. Cosmic. And guess what? The reward to Jesus, to Jesus for what he did is this. Us, the church. His people. We are his inheritance. That's how and how big's the inheritance? Well, a good few billion by now. Yeah? Good few billion by now. The church is having bigger bigger times and bigger growth in other parts of the world than this one, but hey, okay, we keep praying it's our turn again soon. There's an explosion of of, of the gospel in our nation. Where Christ's inheritance, his reward, in fact, he says in Isaiah 53, of the Messiah, that having gone to the cross, having been brutalized and, and laid in the tomb and all the rest of it, it says this in Isaiah 53, he will see of his reward and be satisfied. He'll see the fruit of his reward and be satisfied. 
Guess what that reward is? It's us. It's us. You say, we don't look like much. He hasn't finished with us yet. We are co-heirs with Messiah, so that all that is now and will be his will be ours too when this age is completed. We're his inheritance and he is ours. In fact, God said to Abraham in the literal version of Genesis 15, verse 11, God said to Abraham, I am your shield and your very great reward. Some versions say, and your reward will be very great. That's not what it says, literally says. And it, because people find it difficult to understand what, that it's literally saying this. I am your reward. I am your shield and I am your reward. And I could add to that because of what we're saying this morning. And he's my supply. He's my helper. He's everything. God himself is our reward. God has invested great riches in his children and he has a great inheritance to share with us. And it's himself in Jesus. Number three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his vast strength? God's power is towards us, at work in us and through us and available to us. Notice, not just some anointed people, you know, but to all those who are children of God. And again, like John Glass said, just as I've been saying, anointed in the New Testament only occurs outside of anointing with oil, literally anointing with oil in the Gospels of James. It only occurs in 1 John 2. And, it's, and there John is emphasizing every Christian is anointed by the Holy Spirit. Yes. Not some special class of people. No. So when people claim special anointing, you say, no, 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 you're going beyond Scripture there. That's an argument the Scripture doesn't do. The way we came to life and faith in Jesus is by the working of God's power, namely by the Holy Spirit. We'll come to that again in Ephesians 2, but the point here is that we, the way we start is the way we continue. To live by the working of his vast strength. When we read the words power and strength and might, um, if, if, if the, some picture of some steroid-enhanced bodybuilder comes to mind, please chase it out your head, okay? What the Bible means most by power and might and strength is another word, authority. You see, when God wants to make a world or a sun or to cause the, 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 the oceans to teem with life or the land to be full of creatures, he has only to say it and it happens. That's authority. It's not, I'll roll my sleeves up and do something now. God, God's mimicking us when he uses that sort of language. My own right arm will do this. God has only to speak, and it's so. A centurion, a Roman centurion, understood that. Do you remember? Yeah. My, my, my servant is sick. Oh, I'll come. Jesus, you don't need to come. You just speak the word. The centurion understood authority. It wasn't about how big and strong and mighty someone looks. It's that they have the power to make a command and for it to be done. That is authority, power of mind. Paul, inspired by the Spirit, makes a very bold comparison here. The change that God has made in us who are born again of the Spirit of God, brought from death in sin to new life in Jesus, is the same change that took place in the body of Jesus between his being dead in a tomb and alive in the throne of God. It's the same change. And it's said here, not just once, 
but twice in the verses we're looking at today and again in Ephesians 2 when we get there. Is the position of Jesus alive, living, seated in the throne of his Father different from Jesus lying on a, on a stone slab in a tomb, dead? It's different, isn't it? Yeah. I'm not trying to trick you. Then, your position as a Christian, having been made alive from, the de from, from your death in sin, is totally different. Your condition, your character, your, your, what you are, is completely different to what you were. Yes. Now I'm getting into Ephesians 2 a bit here, but let me give you a headline. The past is another country. Don't drive looking in the rearview mirror. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Delivered from your past, from your darkness, from your sin. Changed by the power of God. The converse, this is one of the commentaries I read. The conversion of the soul is not a small matter, nor is it a work affected by any human power. It is a resurrection due to the exceeding greatness of the power of God. What was true on the day that he brought you from death to life and from darkness to light, from the rule of the devil to the rule of Jesus, the beloved Son of God, is true every day for us. We just keep on living the same way. And it's summed up in this phrase, his immeasurably great authority, power, might is toward us. It's at work for us and in us. Now Paul really adds words to words here. It's like he's, he's, like he's flicking through a thesaurus looking for another word here. We need to know this is true, and knowing this truth will set us free to live with skill in the will of God. I often think of these three words. They're, they're some of the attributes of God. Wisdom, power, love. It may be that an old tune stuck in my head, you know, our God is an awesome God, he reigns from heaven above. With wisdom, power, and love, our God is an awesome God. How many remember that song? Yeah. That phrase, wisdom, power, and love, but, do you know they're here in what we just read today? They're here. Paul has said, taught, or prayed that each of these attributes flows to us from the Father. He has lavished the riches of His grace in love He predestined us. The love of God is towards us. He says He's lavished all wisdom and understanding upon us. The wisdom of God is poured out towards us. And then this third one, the power of God is it towards those who believe. God's strength, God's authority, God's energy, those are all words based on the Greek words there. Energy is a Greek word really. They are towards us, they're for us. All of God is wisdom, love, power. Let me tell you from my notes here. God is not the heavenly watcher while we're doing, acting out our little lives. All the world's a stage, says Shakespeare, and everybody's a, an actor on it. And you think, well, who's the audience? Oh, God must be the audience. Wrong! God is not an audience. He's a participant. He partners with us. What bit of I am with you do you not get? We really have hardly begun to understand that in Jesus being made flesh and now through the Holy Spirit, God is with us. Not just cheering us on, He's actually with us and for us. 
Let me spell that out some more. God is with us in our home, in our workplace, in our marriage and family, in our trials, in our illnesses, in our cash flow, in our hearts, in our minds. He is with us. I will never leave you or forsake you. But we have to chase some foolish ideas out of our heads at times. We allow ourselves to think that there are parts of our existence where God is not present. I will tell you the psalm that says, if I make my bed in hell, he's there. If I go to the depths of the sea, if I go to the uttermost parts of the earth, and to do what? Like Jonah, try to escape from God. You can't escape him. Because <laughs> he's not just everywhere generally. If you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, he's with you. And you can't do a runner. Because he's with you. I spend most of my teens trying to run away from God. There's not one bit of life where God does not say to us, I am here, I am with you. Not one bit of your life where that is not being said to you. I am here. I am with you. His wisdom and love and power are towards us and they reach us whenever we will ask for his help and supply. Hebrews 4 says we need to come boldly to the throne of grace. Who's sitting on the throne of grace? Jesus is. That we might receive mercy and grace to help in a time of trouble. Now I don't know about you, but I get plenty of time to trouble. Not just personally, but dealing with all kinds of stuff. What do I need? I need the Berlin airlift from heaven. I need God's supply of what? Those three things. I need his love to secure me. I need his wisdom to direct me. And I need his power to enable me. That's how we do life. With the help of God. Let me tell you those three things again. Years ago, I read one of my first Puritan books. It was called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by Thomas Brooks. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Well, here's three good, solid drafts of medicine for us today. If you will receive them. To be focused in this, in your understanding. Let the Holy Spirit teach you and show you these things. And then let them settle. So they begin to shape the way you respond. Life. The hope of our calling. The hope of our calling is greater and better than the temporary pleasures of sin. Sin calls out, this is fun, it's all right. But the hope of your calling will give you the answer no, to, to answer no to ungodliness. I've got something better. The hope of my calling. The greatness of his inheritance. There is a reward for faith and obedience, and that reward laid up for us is far better than the payback of sin. What does sin pay, back? What does sin pay you back? Yeah. Death, thank you. Got some theologians in front of me. <laughs> the wages, the payback of sin, is death. But the payback of faith and obedience is life, eternal life, life with Christ. And the greatness of his power is at work in us and towards us. 
We've only to ask to receive mercy, grace, help, strength. I've said before, I know I say some things very often. The number of times when, you know, I don't know if people say it nowadays, they maybe say something far worse, but you know, oh, give me strength. <laughs> well, why don't you make that a real prayer? Because it's available. It is available. Strength and help from God is actually available to you. And you only have to say as much a prayer as that is a prayer. Rather than a complaint. Lord Jesus, give me strength. Give me wisdom. How many times do I ask God for wisdom? Oh, a lot. I know this blessed Shinonsa last week when I put it this way. We were talking in our small group on Wednesday. More than all we need is available to us. More than all we need to do life well, to fight and kill sin and to live with skill and wisdom. All the help we need and more is available to us. But let's get to this last point. Paul hasn't finished exalting in the power of God yet or talking about God raising Jesus from the dead, and that being, that being equal to, compared to, our being made alive now as new people in Christ Jesus. He demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. Listen to this. Far above. Far above. Every ruler and authority and power and dominion and every title given not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He demonstrated this authority, this energy, this might, this strength, when he overthrew death and raised Jesus Messiah to live and, and, and reign with him in the throne of his energy, his ro- uh, throne of authority. Jesus here is said to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And it's still accustomed to this day that the the person of the greatest power and authority sits while all around them must stand or bow or even kneel. When we talk about a leader or someone having authority, responsibility, we talk of a chairman or a chairperson, or we talk of a throne, or we talk of a seat of power. The Jesus who was nailed to a cross and laid dead in a tomb now sits in the throne of God as king of creation. Jesus, if you like to put it this way, is God's right-hand man. God the Father does nothing except he does it through his son. All authority is given to him. The Father's delegated the kingdom, delegated all authority, all responsibility, all rule, all governing to Jesus. He's God's right-hand man because Jesus still is the man and he's far above every ruler and authority and dominion and every title that's given is is Paul trying to make sure he doesn't leave anything out well actually there's a significance to this because those words ruler, authority, power and dominion were used by those who had a mythical legendary idea about angels and demons there were these layers of angels and layers of demons and they used this language And Paul isn't saying, you need to understand all of that. He's saying, no, no, forget all of that. Jesus is far above all of that. Even if it is so, it's not an issue. He's far above all of that. Our God is greater. 
greater than any king or queen, any president, any government. Oh, I'm glad he's greater than presidents and prime ministers. He's greater than any army, any power, anything with any kind of authority in this world. His authority is far greater. Yep. We're going to play later on Nobody Greater by Sean Mitchell, which Juma's going to play as well. I gave her the video. For it. We were agreed before we even got here. We're going to play that song. End of the morning. Far above. Far above. Now, here's the thing. We already read, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, blessing of the Spirit in the heavenly realms. When we get further on into Ephesians 2, we have been seated with Him in the heavenly realms. So guess what? We are far above too. So if I really short-circuit and go as far as Ephesians 5 and 6, I can tell you this. The warfare we fight is not up into the heavens, but from the heavens down into the earth. People talk about spiritual warfare. We've got to get up and take the high places. We're already seated higher than the high places. Jesus has far above authority. And when we get into his presence and we begin to worship and praise him and ask of him and, 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 and ask for his kingdom to come and his will to be God, we are yielding and working with an authority which is far above anything of human or demonic activity altogether. We are literally overruling it because we're in him. Now I'm getting way down into this. Let me just read you a bit of Romans 8 where Paul hits the same drum, okay? Listen to this, Romans 8, verse 38 to 39. I am persuaded, I'm convinced, that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, maybe demonic things, height or depth or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God. That is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. His love is towards us, but his authority is far above all of us now. And then he says, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, I'm going to be, ah, be a bit naughty. I'm going to reverse the order of that phrase. Because I don't know about you, but I don't have so much of a problem believing in God's power being complete and full in the age to come. When Jesus comes and renews all things, new heaven and new earth and so on. My problem is figuring out how his authority works here now. But it's the same authority. It's the same kingdom. We are to believe to see something more, something more, his kingdom advancing, his kingdom and power and glory in this age, because already we are foretasting the age to come. Jesus has all, all authority in heaven and on earth. When? Now. now. He appears to John on the other Patmos and says, I have the keys of death and of Hades. When does he have the keys of death and of Hades? Now. When does he rule? Now. now. When is his kingdom extending and advancing? Now. now. There's been a tendency for many decades for people to write off to the second coming things that are actually happening now and need to happen. They happen increasingly. His second coming is the fulfillment and completion of his work, not the start. Yes. Yes. It's when he's finished his work of gathering his kingdom. I've got some more scripture to do. This is the last bit. And he put everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything, listen to this phrase, for the church. Amen. For our sake. For our sake. 
which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. He put everything under his feet. That's a quotation from Psalm 8, which kind of really speaks about man being given authority over creation. You see, God originally gave Adam uh, responsibility for his creation. He was God's deputy, delegated authority. But Paul applies it now to this man, to this man, Christ Jesus. And he does that in a number of scriptures. He's appointed him head over everything to the church. God appointed Adam to subdue and fill the earth with his offspring. God has appointed Jesus to have all things under subjection, under his feet, to fill all and in all through his church. And God has appointed, we read it earlier today, God has appointed us to be in Christ Jesus and to know his will and his joy and his good pleasure, to understand his grace, his calling, and his empowerment. We know who we are, we know who he is, we know what we're here to do, and we are relying on him, don't we? Don't let that phrase head over everything for his church, go Pastor. Jesus doesn't just rule over everything. He rules over everything for his church. The sad thing about a great many political leaders is they, they rule, they govern for a particular group of people. For all the people who are rich like them. Or all the people who agree with their political philosophy. And if you're not in that group, you're going to have a hard time because they're not really caring about you. Jesus rules over everything, everything for his church. Jesus has our care, our concern, totally in his focus. Our well-being. He's never deflected from it. He's never moved from his mission to gather and perfect and bring to maturity a people for himself. Nothing is outside of his view and concern. Nothing is either too small or too big for his attention and his authority, which is towards us. Someone may say to me, but you don't know how big my problem is. To which I will reply, kindly if I can, you need to see and understand how great and how good, how strong our Lord Jesus is. I was remembering songs that I used to sing uh, when I was in Africa. There's no one, there's no one like Jesus. There's no one, there's no one like Jesus. If I remember it right, I probably got it wrong. Akaka. There's no one, there's no one like him. Very simple song. There's no one like him. But when you think all his authority, all his wisdom, all his love is being directed to us to help us, to strengthen us, to equip us, to empower us, so that we live life with skill. That's extraordinary, isn't it? And the, the church is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Let me just make that simple. The church is the body of Christ and is to be filled with him who fills all things. It's to be ruled by him who rules all things. It's nurtured and supplied by him who cares for all creation. Because through the church... Jesus fills the world. As he fills us, we fill the church with him. With the knowledge of him. With the, Paul even talks about the smell of him. The aroma of Christ. Let 
we may say amen to all this, but let's now make that personal. I am to be filled with him and ruled by him. Since I'm already owned by him, he bought me with his own blood. Understanding his word and his will should profoundly affect how I walk. You know the Bible uses the word walk for the whole way of life. We need wisdom to do life well. We need wisdom to do life well. I'll tell you where to get it. Bible. To become wise, you must apply yourself to Scripture. I mean, read and study it. And then apply Scripture to yourself. Don't really say, oh, that was good. And then you walk away. But James, James says that's like a man looking in a mirror and he walks away and forgets what his face looked like. No, we, we apply ourselves to Scripture and then we apply Scripture to ourselves. We take the benefit from it. We take the instruction from it. We take the warnings from it. In fact, here's three words that I came across. In a, it was John Maxwell, the guy who writes about leadership. I love these words. God's Word is my guide, my guard, and my gauge. The Scriptures direct me they protect me, and they measure me. They tell me how I'm doing, truthfully. Doing well or not so well. Your word, says the psalmist, is a light unto my feet and a lamp to my fire. So I know where I'm going. One of the important things in being a Christian is this, that you know where you're walking, you're walking in that direction. You might stumble, but you're still on, the, you're still on that journey. The danger is you're diverted, you, you take off... Or you turn back. You go back to your old way of life again. My friend, you may stumble, but keep walking. Your word is my guide. Gives me direction. Gives me purpose. Then it's my guard. There are some serious warnings in Scripture, aren't there? We we dealt with some of them in Hebrews. There are times when, you know, God rebukes us. And do you know what a rebuke feels like? Ooh. If you don't feel it, ooh, you haven't been rebuked. <laughs> Correction. In fact, you know, really the language of Scripture is this, that God gives us a good whack sometimes. He disciplines his kids, his children. Why? For our good. That we might share in his holiness. There is guarding and correcting. There's encouragement and there's correction. There's nurture and there's admonishment. We'll look at that when we deal with raising children in Ephesians 6. Nurture and admonishment. God encourages us and corrects us. And we need to be open in our hearts to the Holy Spirit to bring that to us from Scripture. And then it's the gauge. It says, you're doing well here, here, well done, well done. Come on, we need to talk about this. Why aren't you asking for help? Why aren't you submitting yourself to some supply to deal with it? Why do you think you're going to fix it on your own? Why, why are you trying to run away from it? My gauge. We're measured by the truth. And our response to that is not, oh, poor me, woe is me. It's to come and say, grace and mercy, please. Yeah. Grace and mercy. Supply me, help me. Lead me, direct me, correct me, supply me, give me energy. Make me brave to deal with this. Give me wisdom to tackle it. 
I must seek his wisdom so that I will walk worthy of his call. <coughs> I need to not just be connected to Jesus in some kind of belief system. <coughs> it's time to stop, isn't it? That's why it's The Bible takes it further than being just connected to Jesus. It talks about being filled with him. Filled with him. So that he, through me, through all his people, may fill this world with his light, his love, and his wisdom. I pray that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened. That you may see the hope of your calling the greatness of his inheritance in the saints and the overwhelming, I mean, Paul just piles on words here, the immeasurably greatness of his power which is towards us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And it's how we began to be Christian, by an act of God's power. It's how we're going to live every day of our lives, depending upon that same resurrecting power of Christ to put life in us. We will not make it on our own. We'll shrivel. But we live under the supply of heaven. Day by day, or if you're like me, even hour by hour. We're going to break bread together. As we do that, we remember again, everything we have, everything we are, is because it was bought at the price of God's Sons, body and blood. Redemption. Even the fact that we find ourselves to be a believing people, having faith, is a gift of God. By grace, you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we submit ourselves again to the grace of God to the mercy of God, and say, we are here in your hands, Lord. Here to be guided, guarded, measured. Here to be led and fed and nourished by our good shepherd. Here to be directed and encouraged and instructed and corrected. <coughs> At times, by loving Heavenly Father, we are yours. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you gave your son. You didn't withhold him. You gave him up to the cross. On the third day, you gave life to his body so that he was raised and exalted, ascended to your throne. He lives and reigns with you. We thank you that that same authority that same power by which Jesus was made alive and Lord, ruler, from being dead, has made us alive in him. The same power. We sing it. But, oh God, please, open the eyes of our understanding so we really see this.
please, Lord. This is the radical change which you have already done. Therefore, we live now by that same power. The same power. As well as your love and your wisdom which you lavish upon us. You don't withhold them from us. You're not playing games with us. You dearly wish to supply us from heaven with more than all we need. You're a good, good father. So we bless your name, Father, that you have blessed us. And we thank you for your Son, Jesus, our Lord. Thank you again that everything belongs to him. And one day, in him, we'll inherit it too. Amen.